messy church, but a community like no other. Messy church, the church in Corinth was certainly in a mess, and we're looking at Paul's first letter to the church there. The church may have been in a mess, but so to be fair was the city of Corinth. It was the largest town in Greece. It was set at a crossroads on a narrow strip of land, and it was both a seaport and a major road junction. So not surprisingly, the Romans, who knew there were traders, that is a modern trader in that part of the world, the Romans knew there were traders, there were people coming and going, merchants, it was a seaport and so on. The Romans, who ruled much of the known world, used it as a garrison town and as the capital of their local area, their local province. People from all over the Mediterranean and beyond lived and worked there. There was a craftsman in the same sort of area today. There were markets, lots of them. People came from all over the place to trade. It was an international community with many religions, including the worship of the goddess Venus. There would have been traders, people bringing their produce from all over the area. It was a community also of many races. But it was also known for ways of living that had no moral boundaries. And even in those days, sadly, it was a word, it was a byword for immorality. The Romans made it pretty clear that you had to behave yourself because they were in charge. They took taxes and so on, just as they did in the time of Jesus in the area where he lived. The Romans certainly brought their kind of peace, but it was on their terms. Messy church. Now, to be fair to the Christians in Corinth, they had few Christian role models they could look up to. They had few, if any, books to guide them on Christian living. They would have had Paul's letters, but not, I think, much else. They would have had their own culture. Some of them would have been Greek, some of them Jewish. And that was always assuming that they could read, which lots of people in those days, of course, could not. So they had to rely on the teaching from Paul and others who could speak with real authority on what did Jesus say? Now, false teachers might have tried to take them away from Jesus. Paul always pointed back to him. And in so many cases in Paul's letters, I find myself thinking, I wonder, what was the situation that Paul was writing about? What had happened in the church to make him say this or that? Because on this one, Paul was very clear. They should not compromise on many issues, including the one that's mentioned here. Should we go with the idolatry that we see around us, offering sacrifices to the local gods, and the temples would have been all around them? After all, the idols are nothing, so what does it matter? Paul is very clear that it does, and he tells the Christians to keep away from the temples, which would have been all over the place in every other street everywhere in the town, because he can see behind the idol worship spiritual forces, evil forces, demons that they must avoid. Last night I was watching uh, the Hobbit film, um, which again is about, written by Tolkien, who like C.S. Lewis, wrote of the battles between good and evil, and you do get some picture of the forces of evil. But Paul here was no 
in no doubt at all, that evil spiritual forces they must avoid. Now, there were some other issues on which Paul allowed them ease in which to decide for themselves, or other matters where we might reasonably well say, such as the management of your slaves, which we might reasonably say, now that was cultural, that is of a different time and we need to look at it from a different angle. But he was quite clear there should be no compromise here for those who follow Jesus. Now if this evil spiritual forces has been a problem for you in the past, please come for prayer afterwards or speak to one of the clergy because Jesus wants us to be free from any such force. Forces, please note, he has already defeated. But I wonder, are there other areas of compromise for us as Christians now? Perhaps it's the thing that everyone does. Maybe it's seeking after too much money, or maybe becoming by that money by less than honest means, fiddling our tax returns, or maybe it's quite different, using sexually explicit material that does not honour God because it treats people as things. Perhaps it's the worship of other things, ambition, money, position, status. Nothing wrong with earning money to support ourselves and our families, or being willing, as I know many in this room have, to take on a job with more responsibility, provided our motives are for God and not for ourselves. So we have to ask, is this for me or is this for God? As John Coyne said last week, we are on a journey and we must be sure we have new life, that we are walking with Jesus. Now in the reading from Matthew that Sue had at the end, Jesus speaks of the narrow way. And this picture gives an impression of a narrow way through a difficult place, but it is a way. It is a way through. When we have a decision to make, let's talk to Jesus about it and keep walking on the narrow way with him. Think, is this the way Jesus would go? I know only too well myself that he knows all the time what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and what the real issues are. So I talk to him, listen to him, and let's do that. Because I know also that anything the devil can use to take us away from God, he will cer certainly use. Again, if you've concerns on this, and you think it would, make, it would help, do come for prayer afterwards. So, I said we are a community like no other. What, makes, what are the sort of things that make us different? One of the things is that Paul, recognising that many others in Corinth sacrificed idols, is keen to encourage his Christian friends to share in the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Mass, the breaking of the bread, whatever you call it. When we share in the bread and the wine, as we're so very soon to do, we each remember Jesus' body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me, for my sin, so I could be made right with God. But also, Jesus' body was broken for each of us. His blood was shed for each one of us, for our sin, so we could be made right with God. Try and recall a time when you were with others and you were all given a gift by a good friend or a relative. It may have been awarding certificates or a prize or something at the end of a course where everybody had earned that. 
I remember myself when I became a lay reader in 2003, at the beginning of January, the service in Litchfield Cathedral. And it's the details of things like that that you remember that really make them real. I was walked up to the front by a kind member of the congregation who had to officially present me to the bishop. And we were then each given a Bible by the bishop. And I can't remember the exact words that he said, but I do remember that he came round and actually spoke something to each of us, although all of us were receiving. Now, there were 30 of us, either becoming lay readers or lay ministers of some other sort, such as prayer guides, pastoral workers, and so on. We'd done a course together for two years. And when you train like that together for a long time, you do get to know each other well. And it was a great group. There were retired people, there were people still at work, there were people with young families, people who were grandparents. There were people working in factories, there were some teachers, people like myself. I was by then working for the Diocese of Birmingham. There was a retired prison officer from Stafford Jail. We were a real cross-section, and we had actually gelled very well. Each one of us was given a Bible, but it was a separate experience for all of us. And I remember times, again, when I've been with friends or, or relations, and we've all had a small gift of some sort. When we take the bread and the wine, we each have our own private moment of closeness with God, which is ours alone. But it happens in a place where it's being shared by all who share together. Imagine we're each being given a good gift by a good friend who has a private word, a private moment for each of us because that's what we're receiving from God. This simple act, as John said last week, is one of the ways in which God tells each of us how much we are loved. His body and his blood was shed for us, was broken and shed for us. And then Paul comes out with a beautiful sentence in verse 17, which is used and is familiar in the communion service. Though we are many, we are one body, because we all share in one bread. Now notice, we are not one body because we belong to the right church. We are not one body because we live in the right area, come from the right social group, educational background, culture, or anything else. And we are not one body because we are in the know. We are the in crowd. We know things that others do not. At the time that Paul was writing, there were people in the ancient world who had plenty of groups like that. You were in if you knew certain special knowledge that others did not have. Now, in Corinth, there would have been many, though we are many, from many walks of life. There would have been traders, people with little money, and those who had plenty of money who'd later contribute to support the church in Jerusalem. There would have been officials from the government, laborers in the port, Women who cared for their families at home, and people working for the military authorities, and slaves. But they made one body as they shared in one bread, and so can we. Whoever we are and whatever our situation, Jesus says, come. A community like no other. Recently, I was talking with a young man who wanted to start training for the ordained ministry. He wishes to become a vicar. He is very bright academically. He did a degree in international relations, I think, at Nottingham, and then gone on to do theology somewhere else. 
it happens that both his parents are in the ordained ministry. But to test whether this was what God wants him to do, he'd taken a job working in an inner city church in North London as part of a scheme for people in his circumstance. And then he'd stayed on to work as a youth worker. He spoke very movingly of how, when he was waiting to go up and receive the bread and wine at communion, he had almost taken a step back and looked over the others who were sharing in that service that day. He was amazed again at the range of people who make up a strong and healthy church. By the way, he applied for the ministry. He was accepted. He starts training in September. Our church, of course, is completely different, but the picture is the same. What may appear on the surface is not what's necessarily going on in our lives, but though we are many, we are one body. And this simple service, which we're about to share, flatters no one. At the Lord's table, there are no celebrities. It can be understood by anyone and is open to anyone who knows and loves Jesus and is walking with him. And of course, also includes an invitation if you prefer to come up simply for a blessing. It goes outside our own church. Many of us will have had the joy of sharing the bread and wine in different circumstances, in different churches, in different denominations and so on. And we know the value of worshipping with other Christians. Or actually, you come back to the beginning and you realise, hang on, I've got to start from, from scratch here. Maybe it's in unfamiliar places, maybe way outside our own comfort zones. But we still recognise, though we are many, we are one body. We all share in one bread. Now, it occurred to me, somewhat naughtily, that if I were to suggest a competition of who has been in a communion service in a most unlikely setting in this church, I think there will be a range of entries, including both in this country and overseas. So here is mine. Mine is, was in the outpatients department of a rural hospital in Malawi. I couldn't understand the local language, except I could understand, the, I recognised the word Jesus, and I thought, yeah, okay, I think I've, if I can switch on to that, I'm okay. But I recognised the structure of the service as similar to that at home, and I could certainly understand the warmth and the commitment of the Christians taking part, because that hospital was a Christian hospital alongside church schools and churches in an area which had little else in the way of welfare. Instead of stained glass windows around the walls of that outpatients department, I know I'm speaking among adults, there were posters advising particularly young people on how not to get sexually transmitted diseases. And I thought, great, that is the church at the sharp end. That is where the church is really serving. That is a community like no other. We shared the bread and wine with our Malawian <coughs> sisters and brothers, and it was great. I learned a lot from them. They shared what little they had. Sure, the church in Corinth is, was a bit messy, and so is ours. But like the Corinthians, we are to be a community <coughs> like no other. And we always start with Jesus. We walk with him, but though we are many, we are one body and we share in the bread and the wine with other believers, just because he told us, and he called us, and he invited us to do so. And his invitation is just the same today. So whoever you are, if you know and love Jesus, let's do that. Come and share. Let's pray before we continue. <clears throat>